We're in a series called Timeless, and it's really about kind of taking some of the timeless principles of Scripture and bringing those back to root uh, in our homes. And so, as promised, we're going to talk a little bit about parenting, a little bit about marriage, a little bit about singleness, a little bit about dating, a little bit about all sorts of things that have to do with life at home, uh, but really under the auspices of taking what's timeless and bringing it back into the modern day. So, um, we have gotten so far away in some venues from what the Bible teaches about certain things that to bring up things that once were accepted until maybe even 10 years ago uh, as pretty normal and pretty foundational in the lives of uh, God's people and most families, um, to bring it up now seems quite weird, even quite odd. But it's hard to demonstrate that our families are getting better, uh, that things are getting more anchored, that things are much more stable than they used to be, that uh, children are coming out uh, far better equipped to deal with the world than they used to in times past, or whatever the case may be. Uh, and so our task as Christians is to pay attention to what our Heavenly Father has laid out in the Word, and to then, because we live ultimately inside of His house, uh, to walk in obedience to His Word and to His rules. So when I was uh, a junior in college, it was my first year where I was going to finally be free of all rules. I was no longer living on the campus. I went to Pepperdine. Pepperdine made you live on campus the first two years you were there. So I, the first step was leaving my parents' house. And, and it was a pretty simple rule structure, really. It was uh, my parents' house. It was essentially uh, honor God, don't mess with your mother, and don't lie, and then do what I ask you to do the first time I ask you to do it. All right. I mean, think about the genius of that, right? Think about, parents, how many times you lose your cool with your kids just simply because you have to ask them 8,000 times. If they do it the first time, think about how many conflicts would probably just be unavoided. So my parents, being the Jedi parenting masters that they were, had it boiled down to a very simple set of, of uh, laws, so to speak. Nevertheless, there were curfews, there were things like that, there were things that governed how you drive your car, how you do this and that and the other, and I was kind of ready to kind of be done with that. So I finally got my chance. I went to college, and there the, the, the only rules were the rules of the campus then. Uh, and they had the cafeteria. I was on a meal plan, so I was basically restricted to whatever was being served in the cafeteria, which was actually quite a bit of food. It just wasn't very good, in my opinion. Um, so you had pizza, you had soup, you had salad. I kind of blew that one off. I, you know, you had cereal, uh, and it was all you can eat. So you can go in, and you can take as much of it out as you wanted to. Now, they've done away with that rule since, but it used to be you could go in and get a big uh, styrofoam container and just fill it full of cookies and just walk out and uh, take it back to your dorm room. And so I lived on pizza and cookies and, and that kind of stuff uh, as long as I could. Uh, eventually, got to my junior year, and my opportunity was finally here. I can live off campus. I can live with the people I want to. No rules. This is going to be awesome, I thought. I should have known it was move-in day. I was living with four guys that I knew very well. They were amongst my best friends. I walk into the house. This is mid-August, Calabasas, California, just through the canyon from Malibu. It's like Escondido's climate. It's barely close to the ocean, so generally it's all right, but it can get really hot in August. And I walked into the house that we were moving into, and the smell hit me immediately. It smelled like burnt trash. And I looked, and right inside the door, the kitchen was just to the left. It was open, and there was a pile of trash. Now, I don't mean a trash can that had overflowed. I mean a pile of trash. There was a can that was overflown. But there was a pile of trash, about thigh high, and it covered probably from about the keyboard to that mic stand. It looked like a mount, like somebody had taken a landfill of paper plates and plastic forks 
and just set it there in the kitchen. So I walk in, there's a friend of mine that, that's actually supposed to be living there, and then there's another guy who I recognize as being a, a, a Swedish basketball player on the basketball team, because he was six foot 11, he kind of stood out. And uh, I, go, I go, hey, and I wave hi to the basketball player, I'll leave his name out just in case he listens to these podcasts by accident or somebody that does, we'll pass this story on to him. And, and, and I just go, what is, what is happening? Well, over the summer, the only two people living there were these two guys. And they had not emptied the trash for the entire summer. Yeah, exactly. This is going to be awesome, I thought. And it just goes on from there. Four more of us move in. Uh, there's five of us total in the house. Basketball player moves out. There's five of us in the house. But the problem you got is nobody's got any rules, right? Like, who sets up rules in a house like that? you got no parents. You know, the landlady might say you pay your rent on the first of the month and... But, I mean, there's no real rules in the house. So I bring mine. They bring theirs. You know, uh, for instance, when I got home Halloween weekend, I'd gone to hang out with my parents that weekend. I get back home, and there's somebody sleeping in my bed. And they're covered in vomit. Yeah, exactly. I was thrilled. This is going to be awesome, man. I got no rules of any kind. It's going to be fantastic. Can't wait. Can't wait for next year. I thought to myself, I hated having to be quiet at a certain time of the night. How boring. Well, it's not boring when you got four other guys who don't care about you having an 8 o'clock a.m. Greek class every day. I mean, Greek's hard enough, but when you can't keep your eyes open, it's brutal. Or an 8 o'clock European history class, or an 8 o'clock, you know, calculus class, or whatever. And you're trying to keep your eyes open, but at 3 o'clock in the morning, this guy, who stayed up all night the night before, didn't go to bed till about 6 o'clock at night. So he wakes up at 3, ready to go. And he starts blasting his music. Now, who makes him turn it down? Nobody. This is going to be awesome, man. I thought, this is going to be awesome. I remember St. Patrick's Day when we got home. I got home. I was gone for that weekend, too. See, I'm not a dummy. I know when it's time to get out of there. I get home. They filled the hot tub with jello. I'm not kidding you. They filled the entire hot tub with jello. All right? So we get, I come home. I see this. And, of course, the thing's broken. Somebody tried to turn the jets on with the jello in there. So the whole thing's busted. And guess what happens then? Somebody finally wants to put in some rules. And here's the rule they want to put in. Now, it's one we've kind of set. All repairs, we will split five ways. And they come to me and they say, hey, we need your, your money for the repair on the hot tub. Why would I give money? Because that was the rule. Any repair, we split five ways. I wasn't even here. It wasn't my idiot idea or whatever. And they go on and on. And on. This is going to be awesome. And then there was the food. The food, yeah. Well, I, I was used to having all I could eat all the time. Well, when you realize I made $500 a semester. Okay, a semester, all right? Not a month, a semester. That's what I had to eat on, all right? So if you're trying to feed yourself, here's what you, here's what you have. Now, this is the only reason I'm still alive, just to let you know. We're going to start here. Of course, the, 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 the actual cornerstone of the college diet, Top Ramen. Yeah, there you go. <laughs> this is about... I had a dime a pack back then, uh, and I managed to be able to buy about a week's worth of groceries for about $5. That's how I made it work. We got uh, beef flavored, much better in my opinion, and certainly than shrimp. Chicken's a runner-up. Okay, and then you have, sounds so luxurious, Chef Boyardee. This is uh, beef ravioli, which is basically a noodle stuffed with like a meat paste of some kind. 
uh, synthetic meat paste. But it was, you know, 40 cents, maybe a can back in those days. Now it's about a dollar. Uh, and I lived on this, too. Very much a staple of the diet. And, of course, there is no replacing this. I still live on this, if we're being honest. We have Kraft macaroni and cheese. It's all right. You can give the good people at Kraft a hand. They made a good thing here. Uh, to this day, uh, what's going to happen is I'm going to take this bag home, and my kids are going to fight over the contents of this. Because it's all right when you're eating this, you know, once a week. Right? But you know what happens when you try to live on top ramen? If that's all you ate. Now, some of you are going, yeah, it'd be awesome. No. You're going to puff up like a blowfish from all the sodium. Uh, you might just be puff and bones. There's no protein in it. Uh, I mean, the sodium count on this. Okay, it's got 27 grams of, uh, of carbs in half of one of these. 54 grams of carbs in one thing of Top Ramen. Okay, just think about this. You go through it, and I think to myself, I'm like, oh, this is going to be great because I can just live on mac and cheese and Top Ramen. And Chef Boyar, Boyarday, as he pronounces his name. <laughs> Sounds so luxurious. Well, you know what happens? Those are good until you have to eat them for every meal, aren't they? And at some point, all of a sudden, your parents, and those of you who are going to college or have been, may know that your parents go from knowing nothing when you're in high school to being complete geniuses by the time that you leave college. And you realize now why they had the rules that they had. Because, yeah, it makes more sense when to go to bed at a semi-decent hour, or at least if you're going to stay up, keep it down so other people can sleep, that you really can't, as it turns out, live on only top ramen. You had your doubts in high school. Now you've tried it, and you understand. Yes, the trash does need to be taken out at some point in the year. It needs to be taken out. They said it was every Friday. You've gone through. And you now realize that the rules aren't necessarily what holds you captive. They're kind of what sets you free. They're make life okay. I mean, do we really want to live in a world where there are no rules? Do we really want to live in a world where everybody just kind of does, to use the words of the Bible what is good and right in their own eyes. That's what it was like at that house. Everybody doing what is good and right in their own eyes. And we were always fighting about who wasn't living by our rules, my own personal rules, and they weren't abiding by them. And so we tried to come up with house rules. The problem was there was no parent in the house. We were just all there, just all trying to make it up as we went. And that's how a lot of parents parent their house that they're in. Their kids are their roommates. They're not really the parent. They're the kid. They want to be cool. They want to be with it. They want their kids to like them. They want everybody to get along. And so their kids live around them kind of as roommates. But what we have to understand is that from a biblical standpoint, your house isn't your house. It's not your house. Your home. That if you're a Christian and you've given your life fully to Christ, your, your home is actually more like a room inside God's house. So the rules of the house are not primarily even set by you. They're set by God. And your job as a parent is essentially you're more like a, 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 an RA in a dorm. You don't run the campus. You're just over that little block. And so when I'm doing this, my job is to make sure that my children are obeying the broader rules of the kingdom of God and what God wants to see happen 
not for me to set, hey, you know what, this is what I think would be good, and hey, I'm going to go to this, I'm going to read this parenting book, I'm going to ch- clip this article, I'm going to go and uh, uh, share this one out on Facebook, and I'm going to go do whatever, and, and, uh, and this and that and the other, because what we realize over time is that a lot of that stuff, it's not all bad, but it's a lot of that stuff is diametrically opposed to what the Bible teaches about parenting our kids. And I'm going to talk today about uh, parenting our kids to those of us who maybe have a kid, or maybe you are that kid who is struggling spiritually. I mean, off the proverbial reservation. And to that, we're going to be in Luke chapter 15. If you have a Bible, go ahead and get it open. Now, we often, when we talk about parenting, we assume a very traditional family model. I don't want to do that this morning. I know we've got a lot of single parents here. We've got uh, some... some uh, People that have perfectly well-adjusted normal kids and some people that have one of those and three of these and uh, different kinds of kids, different kinds of families. And when children rebel, we often, in the past, I think, as uh, the church has, tended to assume that parents might have been too permissive or that they compromised their values somehow, and that's possible. So those of you who are parents and you know that that's what happened, that's okay to own that. It's not wrong to say it out loud. God's thinking it anyway, and the Bible kind of holds you to that standard. But as I said last week, when Em and I were here on the stage, it's also true that people who are fantastic parents can also have kids that don't come out perfect. And one of the case tests for that is God himself. We'll talk about that in Luke 15. God's own kids are pretty rowdy at times. So you have people in the scriptures like David who parents both Absalom and Solomon. One turns out great. One's a complete weirdo. You have people like Jacob. Do you give him credit for Joseph and Benjamin? Or do you say he was a bad father because he had Reuben and Levi? I mean, he was about, he batted about 500 with his kids. So which is it? Are they a good parent or a bad parent? Or are they just so-so? They're kind of like a, a, a bench player in the pros. They, they just kind of sit there. They, they're all right, but you don't put them in unless you, you have to. And there are some parents, whether we want to admit it or not, and I can't explain this, I'm just saying it to you anecdotally from experience, that really do a rather crummy job, and their kids turn out wonderfully. I mean, you probably can look around your circle of friends and go, man, these parents, they're like, you know, or you'll hear stories, you'll read stories of people who grew up in absolutely atrocious upbringings that turned out to be awesome. I'm in a line of work where a lot of guys go into this line of work because they grew up in homes where, you know, their, their family life was a complete mess, and they want to help people not experience that. But they came out pretty good. So do you go ahead and say, well, because they came out good, then their parents must be geniuses? No. What I'm going to suggest to you this morning is that based on what we read in Luke 15 and everywhere else in the Bible, okay, that God is over everything, and that even something transcending your relationship to your kids is the relationship that God has with your kids. And that's something we ought to be grateful for. Now, at times, if you want to live the dorm life, so to speak, or you want to, you want to, you want to, you want to do top ramen and mac and cheese or whatever, that frustrates you. But one of the things that you're going to realize at some point, especially when they finally fly the nest, is that that's one of the best messages you can hear. Is that even if they are no longer in direct contact with you, and even if they've rebelled against you and said, I'm out of here, I'm taking off, that doesn't mean that... God has his eye off of them, or that there's no chance for them to return to God. So in Luke 15, 
the murmuring of the religious about the irreligious is going on. Buzz, 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 buzz. It's like an eighth grade prom. Everybody's gossiping about uh, Jesus and everybody that he hangs out with. Oh, he's a friend of sinners. Ah, bah, 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 bah. And they're, they're buzzing around. And so um, it's about the, the tax collectors and the sinners that Jesus is hanging out with. And he eats with them. They've always been drawn to Jesus, sinners have. His true followers join him in welcoming all who would follow Jesus, whether they're tax collectors and sinners or prostitutes, or they just grew up in good old homes and they want to keep chugging with Jesus. All of those people are welcome at the table of God. That's the gospel. So that's what everything's about. Luke 15, 1 and 2 says, Now the tax collectors and sinners were all drawing near to him. And the Pharisees and the scribes grumbled, saying, This man receives sinners and eats with them. Okay? Well, Jesus receives sinners who repent. Now, there's two words that we don't like very much, sinners and repent. But we make it seem like sometimes if somebody were to acknowledge their sin and actually repent of it and return to God, that that's more shameful than a person who pretends they're doing nothing wrong and stays in the house. And so one of the interesting things is Jesus is going to tell them three parables, not one. He's going to tell them three. One is the most famous. That's the one we're going to be doing. Uh, But he tells three parables. They each have the same point. They have roughly the same cast of characters. Somebody or something is lost, and it's pursued by a relentless searcher. Eventually the item is found, and then there's a big celebration when it's over. So if you're not familiar with the story of the prodigal son, let me tell it to you briefly, and then we'll read a chunk of it. There once was a man with two sons. One comes and he asks for his share of the estate. That's roughly a third back in those days. Okay? A lot of money. And his intent is not to just simply say, hey, I want to go live outside the dorms. He has an intent to spend it on wild living. He wants to go to Vegas with it, so to speak. He wants to go to Tijuana. He wants to go to Cabo. He wants to do whatever. Give me my share of the estate. I'm out of here. So his father says, okay. And he gives it to him, and he goes out, and he blows it. Right then, a big famine hits the land, and so he finds himself feeding pigs. Now, for a good Jewish boy, that's not the job you want. He's feeding pigs. Finds himself getting so hungry, he desires to eat what they're eating. And then it finally says, he comes to his senses. After he's spent everything, after the famine comes up in the land. Okay? Now, now, the funny part is, he has all these friends when he's got his money. All the homies. Homies will always be there for me. Yeah. The homies, they'll always be there for me. Mom and Dad, you just don't understand. The homies, they'll always be there. They are nowhere for this guy. And I'm here to tell you, in most rock-bottom situations I'm familiar with, there was a famine of homies in the land as well. Because people who like a particular way of life uh, don't tend to like it because they think you're the best human being in the world. They do it because of the creature comforts of hanging around with you. You're funding their habits or they're funding yours. And when somebody hits the skids, all of a sudden you look around and it's, pretty, um, it's a pretty barren desert. Nobody's there to help him. His boss is not there to help him. Nobody's there to help him. So then it says this, Luke 15, 17 to 24. It's on the screens here. But when he came to himself, or when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have more than enough bread, but I perish here with hunger. 
I will arise and I will go to my father and I will say to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. Treat me as one of your hired servants. And he arose and he came to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and he felt compassion and he ran and he embraced him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I have sinned against heaven and before you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Bring quickly the best robe and put it on him and put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet and bring the fattened calf and kill it and let us eat and celebrate for this son was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found and they began to celebrate. And just like every great party, there has to be a pooper and that is the older brother. He's about to come on the scene. He shows up, he hears the singing and the dancing, he comes back from a hard work, hard day's work in the field. They're celebrating his brother. And he doesn't think it's fair. He's not wrong. It's just good. He asks one of the servants what's going on. The servant says, hey, your father's throwing a party because your younger brother is home safe and sound. And the older brother gets angry and he refuses to go inside and join the party. Luke 15, 19 to 32. But he answered his father, Look, these many years I've served you, and you never disobeyed your and never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me even a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him, and you said to him, "Son, you're always with me, and all that's mine is yours." It was fitting to celebrate and be glad for this. For this, your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and he's found. So you have this scene, right? You've got the older brother, and he's mad. I mean, you can imagine how he feels. Look, Dad, I just came back. He's probably still in his work clothes. He comes in. This guy's got the robe on him. He's got the ring on his finger. The fattened calf is, well, dead, we'll say. <laughs> Probably on the table or something. <laughs> He's dead. <laughs> uh, and you go, is he wrong? Is he wrong? Well, I want to talk about parenting lessons from this story. We don't look at it through that lens very often. We look at it through, a, hey, this is about lost people. And it, it is, indeed. Um, but it's also about how we deal with people, including our kids, who want to go live in the far country and how we treat those who have remained faithful over the years. You see the older brother, you see the, the wayward son. And so I want us to look at God in a way this morning as a heavenly father who governs everything, including our own homes. So let's take just a couple of lessons from God this morning uh, in how what we see about him as the father in the parable of the prodigal son. One thing to point out here is that God does not change his standards to fit the son. He waits for the son to change to fit his standards. Now, one of the things that you, because this is such a, a, a famous story that has a lot to do with grace and about redemption and how, about the son coming home, is that we miss what may be the single most important thing to notice about the entire parable. He lets the son leave the house. In fact, he equips him to do so. He gives him the resources to leave. If that's what you're going to do, you want your share of the estate? Okay, I promised it to you. Here you go. And he lets the son go. Now that's kind of outrageous. Think about doing that in the world that we're living in. 
Where you have somebody, a kid, who's walking in complete and utter rebellion against God, and that you would have a parent that simply says, okay, here you go. If you're going to live that way, go ahead and live outside the house. I mean, that's such an odd thought in the day and age that we're living in, that we, that parent would be viewed as mean, cruel, crazy, throwing their kid to the wolves, even if that kid's 45 years old. What kind of a parent would do that? God. That's who. I mean, think about a, a picture of God, and some people have this picture of God, which is called heresy, really. That for our sake, God would change His own standards of righteousness to accommodate me. That if I think something's unfair, I mean, you hear it in phrases like, I can't believe in a God who would X, say X, do X, be X. Right? God is not up to my high standard of morals, is what they're saying. I know better. But here God says simply, look, I'm not going to change who I am. He's not going to become the lowest common denominator of righteousness to accommodate and keep His Son in the nest. He simply says, if that's how you're going to live, then may the Lord bless you and keep you, Son. But, but here you go. And the reason He does it, He doesn't appear to alter the rules of the house to accommodate His rebellious Son. Or say, son, tell me what I can do. Is it, is it the food? Uh, I mean, what can we do? I'll let you stay out later. I'll let you do whatever. I'll let you this. I'll let you that. There's none of that. It appears the son simply comes in. He, the dad probably knows the son. He probably knows his intentions. And he says, dad, I want my money. I'm off. And he says, okay. Now, what about the morality of that? Is that right? Is it, is it gracious to do? It's only gracious if you understand that over all homes is the kind of righteous commands of, of the Father. And that the best thing you can do for your child is whatever it is that brings them into alignment with God. And that to whatever extent, whatever it is that you're doing, if it doesn't ultimately bring alignment with God and what they're doing, then it's not right. And it's actually bad. It's, it's like... You know, to put it in a very simple, um, you know, way, you know, it's like saying, yeah, you can have top ramen for breakfast, lunch, and dinner. As long as you stay in the house. As long as you like me. If, if it'll keep you from being mad at me, then, then yeah, you can eat mac and cheese whenever you want. If, if, oh, you mean, if I don't buy that for you, you're going to be upset with me. Oh, well, okay, then I'll, I'll do that. Oh, you want to do that, but... but, but I, it's bad for you. I think it's a bad idea. But that, that's okay. That's okay. If that's what it takes, then go, then go ahead. Go ahead and do it. Is that a good parent? Well, most of us can kind of understand on the surface. And we, we're, it's very easy to recognize in others. It's very hard to recognize in one's own self. Amen. I mean, Em and I are not exempt from the impulse, right? You, who doesn't want to get along with their kids? Who doesn't want to do whatever? But the second that your values shift from... I want to be a, a, a house that glorifies God in everything that we do. From the way that I'm married to my wife, to the way that I raise my children, to the way that I walk around and, and just and live and breathe in the world I'm in today. The second your values go from that to I really, 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 really want to be liked. You've done a huge shark jump 
theologically, morally, into a world where you've gone to now the lowest common denominator, which is the values of your nine-year-old. They've pulled you down rather than you being able to pull them up. And so it's when God doesn't change his standards to fit us, he changes us to fit his standards, that you see what a good parent is like. There's uh, one of the most harsh and sad stories in all the Bible with regards to parenting is Eli the priest. You can read it in 1 Samuel uh, chapters 1 to 3 or so. Uh, the phrase popped up on the radar not that long ago, uh, kindergarten, the, the rule of children, uh, to describe what's going on in a lot of homes today. Well, Eli the priest was in a kindergarten household. He was the priest. He's supposed to be the grown-up in the room. He has two boys, Hophni and Phineas. The Bible describes them this way. Eli had two sons, Hophni and Phineas. They were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. Now, that's a pretty ugly characterization of kids. Uh, it's really not something that's found anywhere else in all the Bible. Well, why are they called worthless? Well, they're guilty of lying with women who stand at the door of the worship center, and then they let them go in and take more of the sacrifices than they were supposed to. So eventually, God sends a prophet to Eli, and he tells him that because of his son's behavior, the priesthood is going to be taken away from Eli's house. But he doesn't blame Hophni and Phinehas. He blames Eli. And he says this in 1 Samuel 2, 29. Why do you honor your sons above me? And then he says he's going to strip the priesthood from Eli and punish his house. This is 1 Samuel 3, uh, 10 to 13, actually. Because his sons were blaspheming God, and he did not restrain them. Okay, so, what's the issue? God looks at it, and instead, of, he does certainly label Hophni and Phinehas as worthless men. The Bible labels them that way. But he looks, and he sees what's going on there, and he, he sees the fault with Eli. He goes, Eli, the issue is that you honored your sons above me. You cared more what they thought than what I thought. And you're the priest. You're supposed to know better than that. You honored your children above me. And it says, because his sons were blaspheming God and did not restrain them. You saw what they were doing. You knew what they were doing. And you did nothing about it. Now let me say something. Uh, and I say this as a fellow parent and a, and a pastor and somebody who loves every person in this room, okay? Sometimes, okay, the reason that our kids never come to their senses is because they never need to. Because well-meaning Christian parents honor their kids above God. The prodigal son here is making a pragmatic decision. He doesn't really go back because he feels like he dishonored God. He's going back because he's hungry. But that's another reason why the father's house rules have not changed and why now it's going to be different. He's learned, he's come to his senses for one reason. His dad let him walk out the door. And he went through and lived out the consequences of the decisions he made he ate the top ramen for a full semester. And all of a sudden, now he can't stand the sight of the stuff. And he's like, okay, I'm going back home. But that's how we learn. 
And so sometimes, sisters and brothers, what the Bible is calling us to do is to make more principled decisions. I don't know how familiar you guys are with hockey. Hockey, picture like soccer on ice skates, okay? Uh, it's not quite that simple, but it's, it's kind of like that, all right? Hockey playoffs have been going on. Well, there's a thing that you'll do sometimes when your team is behind toward the end of the game. There's a net with a goalie in it, and you'll pull the goalie. There's nobody watching the net. So if they fire one down, they're right on target. It's going in the net. Now, normally, the reason that you would do that is you do it in like the last 30 seconds of the game because you wouldn't play much of the game that way because you wouldn't want people to rack up points on you. But they did some, uh, some math on the prospects of this. You can uh, listen. Malcolm Gladwell has a, a podcast called Revisionist History. He talks about this principle in other aspects of life. Um, but, but there's a principle in there that's very prodigal son related that I thought I would share with you. He says the reason that mathematically there are times where, let's say the score is 4-1. to one. You're losing 4-1. to one. Mathematically, you should probably pull your goalie with about 12 minutes left to optimize your best chance to win the game. Why? Because what's a goalie in the net do? Keeps them from scoring. So if they don't score any more goals, you're going to win the game? No, you're going to lose. <laughs> what do you need? You have to score. You need to score more than you need to keep them from scoring. So you pull the goalie, 12 minutes left, and he says, the reason people don't do it, there are two reasons. Number one, they don't follow data. They follow, you know, just the way that it's always been done. And the other is, they don't want people to laugh at them. And so even though they would rather take the loss, then, I mean, imagine you still lose the game. Imagine they actually put one in the goal. How stupid are you going to look? What, what are the other coaches going to say? What are the fans going to say? Can you imagine Twitter after that happens? Whew. And so rather than actually do the right thing, they make the decision, now we'll just go ahead and keep the goalie in the net because we think that's more defensible. What I'm saying is there's going to be moments some of us are going to need to pull the goalie in your house. Some of you know my story. Some of you don't. I'll give you the very cursory sketch of it. I grew up with two amazing parents. Uh, he raised me and my sister both in a very God-honoring way. They, they could easily write a book on parenting, and I would read it and recommend it to everybody I know. doesn't mean they were perfect. It just means, on the whole, they did a great job of keeping their priorities and priorities. Okay? Well, when we hit the teen years, I went one way, my sister went another way. And, and she went detour, okay? I mean, a hardcore detour. You know, drugs entered the picture of the family, ended up with a lot, of, a lot of difficult times and pain. There was a key moment in there where all the normal solutions had been tried. All the things you, you do when you're in that kind of situation. And to their credit, and I, I have rarely seen a parent other than them do this, they made the decision to pull the goalie. And what that meant was to give her essentially an ultimatum that had she made the wrong choice could have led to some really painful things for everybody involved. But the, 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 the theology and the spirituality behind it was we cannot allow you to continue to dishonor God in our home because this is God's house. So if you choose to continue to live in rebellion against God in that particular way, you're going to have to do that elsewhere. And we can't, we can't be a part of it. Okay. One of the most difficult decisions I've ever seen parents make, and it worked. 
Uh, it led to her uh, eventually coming back around. They pulled the goalie. They ended up winning the game, so to speak. And, and, and um, I'm not sure that what that looks like for every parent, and I'm not sure every parent has to do it. Uh, I'm, not guarantee, I'm not guaranteeing you success if you do it. I am guaranteeing you this, that if you allow your kids to blaspheme God and you do nothing about it, that he'll hold you responsible for that. That, and that usually, the way that the prodigal ends up coming back home eventually is they've got to come to their senses. And if they are never put in a position to have to come to their senses, they are probably not going to come to their senses. It is possible to leave the father's house because he won't bring his righteousness down to our level. He will raise us to his. Now we sometimes make the mistake of thinking that what society tells us is true. Society would say something like this, greater love has no one than this, that they accept the lifestyle and behavior of prodigals is morally fine. Jesus said, greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. And so God, in all of his compassion for prodigals, sends Jesus to die on their behalf, on my behalf. Not whitewashing the sin or pretending there is no such thing. He died for something much greater, which is their forgiveness. And he realized that without a shepherd out there looking, and this is something to remember, when they leave your house, it doesn't mean God doesn't see them. Remember how he's pictured in the story. In the prodigal son, now the first two parables before that, you've got the lost sheep, lost coin. He leaves the 99 to chase the one sheep and the lost coin. It's like a widow who's down to her last coin, loses it, and goes through all the sofa cushions looking. That's the picture of God. So God is out there pursuing your child. Or maybe it's you. Maybe it's the parent. That it's you that needs to come to your senses. You always assume, yeah, my kid needs to wise up. Sometimes it's us, parents. We're the ones that got to come to our senses. And that is one of the great gifts to us. Tim Keller writes in his book, The Prodigal God, Properly understood, Christianity is no, by no means the opiate of the people. It's more like the smelling salts. It's what allows you to wake up, to come to your senses. The prerequisite for receiving the grace of God is to know that we need it. Do we know how much we need the grace of God? Do we know how desperately God looks for us to return every single day? So I would beg you this morning, come to your senses do what you can to help your, your kids come to theirs if, if they are outside the father's house. In verses 24 and 32, uh, the father gives reason for celebration. My son who was dead is alive. He was lost, now he's found. See, there's a condition actually worse than death, and that's lostness. There's a condition better than life. To be found by our heavenly father. And so don't be too proud to return to the Father's house. Spiritually speaking, don't be too proud to decide. Uh, don't be so proud that you decide to wallow with the pigs while the fatted calf in the Father's ring awaits you. The Father doesn't disregard the older son. Let's talk about that for just a second. About the need to celebrate this. We had a cat. You know, I, you've heard about my dog, Lucy. The, the, short for Lucifer, as I used to say. She, she's... <laughs> she's... Uh, we rehomed her. She, she's gone. But a lot of you don't know, we at one point had a cat. Buddy the cat, okay? Well, praise be to God, Buddy got lost one day. 
And uh, he was gone. Uh, you know, you get a little kid, and they don't know what they're doing. And they came in, scratched up every piece of furniture he had, scratched me, scratched the kids, scratched, you know, just, just, I didn't want to get a stupid cat. I didn't want to get a dog. I didn't want any animals in the house other than the three God gave me as children. <laughs> but I didn't want them. So, like, I'll take those three. I don't need another one. Buddy, the cat goes, and he gets lost. And then, lo and behold, some well-meaning neighbor finds the cat, brings it back to the house. The kids are ecstatic, right? I'm not. I'm mad. I mean, I didn't want the thing to get eaten or anything, but I'm like, I'm like I don't want it back in the house either. You know, and, and, and it's like that feeling of, why is everybody else celebrating this is terrible? You understand? It's like, I'm the only one feeding this thing. It's destroyed our house. It's whatever. This was our chance. This was our chance to get rid of this thing. And it's back. It's back. You know, this guy, the older brother, He's here and he's he's looking and he's he's not wrong. He, it's, it's his older. I know what it's like to live in a house with somebody like that. A, a, you know, somebody who at the time is just on a different angle than everybody else. They're living their own way. They're doing their own thing without a lot of regard to everybody else. And you sit there, and you keep your nose to the grindstone. And then when they come back, they get all the parties. If we're honest, I'm, I'm now I'm going to talk to those of us who've been Christians a long time. There's this part in the back where Satan does some of his best work on us. Where it goes something like this. Hey man, I'm, well, I'm glad those people are getting baptized, but you know, ain't nobody ever thrown me a party because I've been here serving in this church since day one. Older, older brother syndrome, right? Well, I'm glad that they did that and they made that change or whatever. What about the rest of us that have actually lived the right way for the whole time? Do you, I want you to, to understand how, how Satan plays mind games with us. And so if you're a sibling of a person who's off in the far country, don't let Satan do that to your mind, to your heart. If you're a member of a church, don't let Satan do that to your heart. Because, again, one of the things that living in the Father's house is supposed to do is make our heart more like the Father's, who, as he says, he says, look, I see you. Everything I have is yours. But we have to get fully in our bones what a big deal it is to our Heavenly Father when the lost one comes home. It's not, it doesn't in any way minimize what faithfulness looks like. But there is something that can be said when... You're used to watching uh, when you're used to living in a particular way and you feel like somebody has made a mockery of it by going on living the way that they want to and then just kind of coming back. It's that, and what we don't realize we're saying is being in the Father's house is a, a labor. It's a chore. It's a hard day's work. How come they didn't have to work? When in reality, amen. And when the reality is, <laughs> and the reality is, I look at it and I go, I go, is that how we see living in the Father's house? Is that how we see living with God? It's a hard day's work. Look, I understand it's hard sometimes. I get that. But part of being a faithful child of God is not just even reaching out to the prodigals. It's actually learning to experience the joy of the prodigal's return and the daily joy of being there and enjoying the Father's presence every day. And, and it took me a long time when I realized 
that I really wasn't supposed to be like, to be a child in the house of God is not fundamentally about just being a vineyard worker in the vineyard of God. It is that, but it's also learning to enjoy being around my heavenly father. I've got to learn that the rules that he gives me, I ought to be honored and privileged that he doesn't make me eat top ramen and mac and cheese, proverbially speaking, every day. That he loves me, that he cares for me, he cares for my family, and that he provides for us. And that when he gives us instruction, that that's good. It's more precious than gold, sweeter than honey, as the scriptures say. And that he gives that opportunity for other people to come home. And, and, and when they do, because his heart is full of joy, mine should be full of joy. Not resentment. Well, how come they get all the parties? How come they're the ones? No, 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 no. That's what he says. We got to celebrate, son. We got to celebrate. Today we're celebrating, for some, the redemption of what was once lost but is now found. We're here to celebrate. And I need you to understand something because we're, you know, we're in one of these points as a church where we're clarifying who we are and what our mission is. Any, any church that claims to be a church, okay, that does not have in the top one things on its list at a pragmatic level, you love God first, and then right behind it is loving your neighbor, and that surely has to include Caring whether or not they spend eternity in heaven or hell. Amen. That has to be on the list, right? It's not just being nice to people. I have to care about you enough that I legitimately care. And I will lay myself down however I've got to, to try and help you find your heavenly father, either for the first time or to come back home. Okay? I will do whatever I can possibly do. This is always going to be an uncomfortable place for older brothers. Because a church in which lost sons feel uncomfortable or aren't welcome tells you you got a lot of older brothers there. And we want to be the kind of place where it's not just for prodigals. That's not the point of the prodigal son. The point of the prodigal son is God wants all of his kids home. And so in the meantime, we're going to try to make sure that we are, we are out there. The reason that we've got two of our best people down on Grand Avenue right now is because we eventually want to build relationships with people that will lead to them finally meeting their Heavenly Father. Amen. That's why. Amen. That's why they're not here. Okay. Does it mean that for one week we're going to have less of this or that? Yes, that's what it means. Okay. But going forward, the reason that we're doing what we're doing you don't do something like this just for fun because there's a lot of pain in it too. You do it because you're trying to align your heart and the church's heart with the heart of God. That's what we're trying to do. So I'm inviting you, sisters and brothers, to align yourself with the heart of God for lost people. If you're a parent, uh, maybe you need to pull the goalie. Maybe it's you that needs to come to your senses and start taking your house and aligning it more with the will of God. Or maybe you're the one that needs to come home. 
My daughter's playing Dorothy in The Wizard of Oz right now. And of course, it's hard to picture The Wizard of Oz without the ruby slippers. They've got her wearing a bedazzled set of Converse All-Star high tops on the play. But you know what she does? She, she grabs the dog and Glinda the Good Witch is over her shoulder saying, all right, close your eyes, and says what? There's no place I come, right, at the end. She wants to go back home. And she says, there's no place like home. That's really the moral of the prodigal son story, right? You don't really have to click your slippers. You just need to head that direction. And when you start heading that direction, you've got a father who will run to meet you. So there is no place like home. And our job as Christians, those of us who have come home already to the Heavenly Father, our job is simply to celebrate. It's really not that hard. Celebrating is fun. And so I want you today, um, if you would, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to offer a, <clears throat> a prayer. We're going to gather around the Lord's table now. Let those who are going to be serving the elements go ahead and take their spots and I'm going to offer a prayer as we gather around the table, a twofold. One is, for those of you who have prodigal kids, I want to pray for you this morning. Um, you know, as a parent myself, I can imagine how hard that would be. As being a kid in a house with a prodigal at one point, I, uh, I know what it's like. It's hard. And I want to pray for you. You, know, you don't want my top ramen? You're in college. You sure you don't want it? Okay. I'll take it too. <laughs> um, but... Uh, you know, if uh, I want to just lift you up in prayer today, I want to lift your kids up in prayer today, okay? And so uh, with the church, just as we, as we pray, would you just, I mean, with, with all you've got in you and all the focus you've got in you, let's lift the prodigals up in prayer. And I'm offering you an invitation if it's you, if it's you, okay, and you need to come home, then the invitation stands for you today. Rain, sleet, snow, whatever, 5 o'clock, I will be at Moonlight Beach baptizing at least four of you, I know. Uh, we'll see how much more we, 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 we end up with tonight. But I want you to know, the only thing separating you from the house of God is you. It's not God. The house isn't too full. Plenty of parking or whatever. It's you. So come on home. Let's pray.